Hello, this is Rupert Sheldrake speaking. I'm here with Mark Vernon. We're doing another in our series of Science Set Free podcasts. And this time we're talking about God and mindfulness. Hello, Rupert. Hello, Mark. (laughs) So I wondered about this subject partly because mindfulness is such a phenomenon at the moment. I feel it's popping up everywhere. I was reading about an initiative in Parliament in the UK Um, And apparently approaching 100 MPs have now done a mindfulness training. Um, It really feels like there's a sort of spiritual revival or something going on. And um, it'd be something worth thinking about. It's presented, I guess, in a more clinical way normally. It's sort of the successor to CBT, um, good mental hygiene and all that. Cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Um, But I, I sense with mindfulness that there's more to it than just the clinical value, actually. In fact, it's implicitly appealing to something which theists, those interested in the spiritual side of life, uh, might feel worth thinking about. Um, And, you know, I'd be interested to talk with you about it. Mm. Um, I mean, first of all, I suppose we could think, you know, what's what's going on with this interest in mindfulness? Uh, I've had one or two ideas. I sense partly it's quite a humdrum thing that um, we live in a culture with so little silence, so little space, um, that mindfulness is a kind of technique that enables you to introduce and hold some silence in your own life. Um, you know, this the idea we live in a culture of distraction, by distraction, you know, through distraction, or the, the T.S. Eliot phrase, I think, isn't it? Um, it's becoming uh, too much, in a way. Hmm. So I, I guess it must be appealing at quite a sort of everyday level like that. Hmm. But I do also wonder whether it's scratching a sort of spiritual itch that is is inside us as human beings, and that for all sorts of reasons um, is not it's hard to find the resources, um, the the way of life um, to take that seriously. And and mm-hmm. at, at some level, mindfulness is appealing in that way too. Mm. Well, I I agree. I mean, it's it's in a sense something that's been brewing for a long time. I mean, back in 1971, which seems eons ago, um, I did Transcendental Meditation. And at that stage, I was at Cambridge, I was working in science, I was rather atheistic in my attitudes. Um, And it attracted me for all the reasons you've just given. And when I went to the introductory talk at Cambridge, the Cambridge Transcendental Meditation Centre, the point they emphasised was that this is something that makes you feel better, relaxes you. They produce scientific data showing it affects blood lactate levels and stress hormones and that kind of thing. Um, that it's good for you. Uh, it, but at the point they emphasised, it doesn't require any belief. If you want to think that this is just something to do with changing your own physiology that's good for you and relaxes you, body and mind, then... That's more or less how they portrayed it. They didn't uh, require you to think that you were contacting any spiritual dimension, any consciousness beyond your own. And it was perfectly possible for me to think about it to start with, as if it was just sort of short-circuiting part of the brain that was somehow making me feel better. I think that's part of the appeal of mindfulness, and um, in a sense it continues uh, the tradition that transcendental meditation started all these decades ago I mean, was it 40 years or more ago the transcendental meditation started pre- preparing the way for this revolution um, by putting it in this very secular framework 
so for me, the interesting question is um, not so much why do people want to do it. I can see why people want to do it for all the reasons you've given. But does this just work inside the brain or is it opening it up to wider levels of consciousness? Yeah, I mean, I, this is, the, I guess, where the, the interest for theists, Christians, um, people that do want to acknowledge some kind of spiritual dimension um, as well comes in. And I suppose for myself, um, the reason why I feel it does lead to um, religious traditions is not just because it's come out of a religious tradition, out of Buddhism, this particular technique, um, but because I feel that the space inside that mindfulness can help you to become aware of um, feels very similar to me to the kind of notions that people talk about in the more mystical traditions of theism and Christianity. I mean, one phrase I really like um, out of the Bible is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. Mm. And that for me speaks of the kind of silence at the edges of your experience that I find mindfulness enables me to pay more attention to or become Mm. conscious of Mm. just that sort of slight disidentification with my normal sort of whirl of thoughts and concerns and anxieties and realizing that's perhaps not the sum total of what's going on inside Mm. Um, even a slight shift there I feel does put me in a sort of experiential felt contact with a lot of what people like St Paul are talking about you know and I mm. it's not I realize now it's no longer I that live but Christ that lives within me mm. and that kind of Christ consciousness notion which I think is replicated in different traditions I feel that's what mindfulness implicitly um, brings about well I think it does uh, but then again there's the the kind of reductive approach to this and the non-reductive approach I mean what a mindfulness secularist might say is that yes indeed it's a bit like Christ consciousness or Buddha consciousness or in in the transcendental meditation context the consciousness of the rishis in the tradition that have been meditators way back for centuries and many generations one's contacting these levels of consciousness but they, the, the reductionist argument would be well that's just because they too have had these physiological changes in the brain and it's all inside the brain for people who are materialists who believe consciousness is nothing but the brain they're always going to try and reduce it to the brain Um, and that's fine by me um, but uh, they then end up with an idea of the brain and matter which is vastly beyond the normal um, ideas about the brain and matter because after all standard materialism has no explanation for consciousness at all uh, let alone mystical states of consciousness, even ordinary ones, um, are unexplained. They're what's called the hard problem. So I think one has to acknowledge that some people are going to interpret it like that to fit with a materialist uh, as a starting point, an assumption. I personally think materialism is much too limiting and one might as well move on beyond it to look at the broader kinds of consciousness one might be contacting through uh, mindfulness or transcendental medica- meditation or what Christians call contemplative prayer and it seems to me that the experience one has is one of, of a larger realm of consciousness beyond one's own limited mind that one's mind seems to or one's being seems to become part of something larger I mean that's my own experience yeah I mean I, I suppose it's a bit chicken and egg you know what comes first the neuron firing or the experience of consciousness um and uh 
people can make, as you say, the reductionist argument, but it doesn't quite stack up for me because I do feel that the most intimate and immediate experience is that of consciousness. Um, one's own hubbubby day-by-day consciousness, first of all, but through these techniques and experiences something much broader. Um, and of course, it's you also gain a sense that it's not just going on in your, inside your head. And in fact, what's going on inside your head is not really a, a primary place to pay attention often at the best of times. You know, it's felt in your body um, and then maybe a sense of um, consciousness which is coming from without your own person too. Now, you could, of course, say... You can always play the trump card. It's just an illusion. Um, but I don't know. It seems to me to be um, an, uh, an unnecessary collapse, um, holding on to some kind of materialist ideology um, in spite of the experience, and um, rather than allowing the experience to, you know, gently, you've got to discern, you've got to explore. That's all part of it. Um, but let the experience speak for itself at some level. Well, I agree. And I was discussing this once with a neuroscientist, and um, he said, um, well, now we've done these studies on meditators and shown which bits of the brain light up when they're meditating. It shows it's all nothing but the brain. Um, And there are some people who take that line. But as I said to him, and and as everyone would agree, if you can hear me speaking now, uh, there are changes going on in your brain um, which can be measured with fMRI and other techniques, but that doesn't prove that my words are nothing but your brain. Um, the, so all our changes in, uh, let's assume all our changes in consciousness, or at least when we're listening or seeing, uh, are associated with changes in the brain. And mystical experiences or states of conscious absorption into something greater are also associated with changes in the brain, but that doesn't prove it's nothing but the brain in any, ca- in any of these cases. So if it's more than just the brain, um, then what is it? And then I think we enter into a realm of um, you know, what other kinds of consciousness are there. And as soon as you look at spiritual traditions, there's not just one, like God or Buddha consciousness. There are many. Um, there are many states uh, or possible forms of consciousness that go beyond the individual human. There might be a kind of collective human superconsciousness in the Christian tradition and in the Islamic and Jewish traditions, there are countless angels or spirits that are autonomous spiritual beings with minds maybe much greater than our own or more extensive than our own. Um, then, of course, there's the the departed saints. There are saints. You know, if many people pray to saints in the Christian tradition or uh, in the Buddhist tradition connect with gurus or teachers. Um, and those are human minds but not embodied human minds and then there are more ultimate states of consciousness there's also the possibility the whole of Gaia or the whole of nature has a great mind a cosmic mind which may not be the same as God but maybe maybe God's mind includes the mind of nature but is not the same as that so we get into a whole range of questions about what this might be it's very interesting you mention the Gaia um, idea of mind that perhaps God includes the, the nature mind um, because I think another important strand which is um, building in our culture in, in society at the moment, not to the extent of mindfulness but nonetheless is there is the ancient tradition of Stoicism and the Stoics um, had an idea that if you can um, 
be less absorbed in the emotional hubbub of the everyday, then what you begin to discern is what they call the logos, a kind of deeper pattern or tendency, um, a pull, a law, um, which they felt pervaded all of the natural world. Um, and that um, their therapy um, was to try and become more aware of that deeper sense of things in order not to be carried away and ruined by um, what happens uh, momentarily day by day. And it's, it's kind of interesting that um, the Stoics had that perception because Stoicism was very much um, behind CBT, behind cognitive behavioural therapy, developing that. The, the, the developers of CBT were um, overtly um, Stoics, but without the metaphysics. They kind of dropped the Logos bit and just tried to take te- te- the technique. And I sort of wonder whether that was a good project to do for a while, but almost like the Logos will be felt somehow. Mm. And so it's no coincidence that mindfulness is now following on from CBT um, and you have mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness behavioural therapies. Um, and so it's almost as if um, that deeper consciousness um, is, is pushing through and, and the research and the way the therapies are developing is somehow responding to that. Now, of course, you know, that... Um, the materialist, again, wouldn't buy any of that at all. It's just like another tradition to draw on and to strip away the superstition and to get the kind of therapeutic value out of. Um, but I wonder whether there is more going on, in fact. Well, I'm pretty sure there is more going on myself. Um, and I think it does relate to other kinds of mystical experience. I mean, it is a kind of mystical experience the, 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 that can be arrived at through mindfulness, not just stress reduction, but the sense of a connection with something larger than oneself. Um, there are many other ways that people arrive at it in Sir Alistair Hardy's um, project in, in um, when was it, the 60s or 70s when he started the uh, Religious Experience Research Unit at Oxford and they collected thousands of accounts from ordinary people in Britain and elsewhere um, about mystical experiences it turned out these are quite common and most people don't talk about them but some people have them in nature some people have them in religious services. Some people have them listening to music. Some people have them when they're in love. Um, There's a whole variety of ways in which people can have a sense of being absorbed in something greater than themselves. And many of them occur spontaneously. Some occur through drugs, of course. Um, I think one of the reasons that people take psychedelic drugs is because um, they can lead people into contact with the realm of consciousness certainly beyond their ordinary uh, mind, but the sense that they're being connected to something greater than themselves. So these are all different ways in which people can approach this sense of connection. And I suppose what differs from the spontaneous ones uh, in mindfulness and in drug-taking is that there is an actual thing you can do. The other ones come unbidden. Often mystical experiences come unbidden, unexpectedly including near-death and out-of-the-body experiences when people have accidents or are resuscitated. Um, But mindfulness is something you can actually set aside a time and do in actual practice, and it doesn't always result in clearing one's mind of distracting thoughts. In fact, distracting thoughts dominate most of the time. Um, But taking drugs is something where you can also set aside a time, take a particular substance, and certain things will happen unpredictably in both cases. Um, But I think the point about mindfulness is it's a practice you can do uh, rather than just waiting uh, for something to happen to you. Yeah, I like that idea too because 
Um, whilst I don't doubt for a moment that religious experience or glimpses, as they're sometimes called, I've heard uh, now glimpses, um, definitely happen. I've always been a bit suspicious of somehow of building too much on those glimpses. Um, I, they're sort of they're, they're treated as kind of exceptional moments, um, and I, I do wonder how um, that can be built into everyday life. Um, I sort of have a sense in the spiritual traditions that these sort of peak moments are, are really regarded as um, sort of unimportant, actually, because they can be distractions trying to go for the peak moment again and again. Um, and I like the idea behind mindfulness that whilst sort of experiences of bliss or um, exceptional um, uh, moments can occur, um, the point is to try and live uh, more um, presently, uh, more in the in the present moment, and and that's good because I think it also um, isn't just helpful in terms of living more contentedly or um, more grounded in a more grounded way, but it also helps the investigation side of it, the discernment um, into the nature of reality. You know, a steadier appreciation of how my consciousness may not be the only consciousness in which I'm embedded actually enables one gradually um, to live um, in that broader sense. Um, every day. I mean, I very much like the Buddhist pictures where the, it, um, the series of pictures where it begins with, I think, a chap taking an ox to market, um, the unenlightened person taking the ox to market, and then the pictures track various moments on the path to enlightenment. But with enlightenment, the, same, the final picture is the same as at the beginning. It's the chap taking the ox to market again, mm. um, but it, with a completely different awareness of what's going on. Mm. Um, and I think that's, a, uh, that's part of the appeal of mindfulness, even over drug taking, actually, for me. I mean, I've never really done such a thing. Um, I'm a bit too much of a control freak. Um, but I do wonder whether, um, whilst drug taking can elicit such a sense, um, it, it, it's at the price of not really being able to discern or sustain or, or, or inhabit um, fully. It's sort of, again, there's a bit of a peak, a coming and going there, um, rather than a real transformation of oneself at some level. Yes, well, I think that the real test is, is the change in everyday life. Otherwise, it's just something in the kind of echoing chamber of one's own mind. And as you say, one of the things about mindfulness practice is changing the way one lives in an everyday way. And, I mean, all these studies on positive psychology, which, again, complement some of this work on mindfulness, this recent decade or two of the investigation of what makes people happy, whereas psychology was mainly based in the past on what makes them unhappy. Um, what makes people happy is being in a state of flow, and being in a state of flow means being participating in something greater than yourself, either being absorbed in work so that you're so absorbed in what you're doing you're no longer thinking about yourself, or dancing, or singing, or doing things, or in conversation with somebody else, or being uh, working with others to do something that's important, um, or even unimportant, just working with others. These states of flow are to do with being part of something larger than oneself, whereas the states of misery are often about being preoccupied with oneself. And insofar as the mindfulness can change one's way of relating, becoming more present, and becoming more open to living and working in a state of flow, then they would also contribute to leading a happier and, and more connected life. Yeah, and also, I, again, with the notion of flow, which, again, is around, as you're saying, in the sort of secular world, um, I feel it's, it's, it's good to, to ask, you know, what is this, um, 
what's this flow telling us not just about how to be happy but about the nature of existence the nature of what it is to be human um and to to in a way reclaim the people who in the past have had this experience of flow and have said but actually this is putting me in touch with you know the divine spirit or with god or mm. um with a muse or um you know a, a broader sense of what it is to be consciousness too um maybe as 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 uh, overall these um ideas become more and more acceptable it becomes easier to talk about things like mindfulness even amongst mps um uh, that perhaps to a wider discussion as to um, what's you know what's going on what are we really experiencing here might become possible as well well i agree i think it's it's one of the things that um is really important and really interesting that's going on now because Transcendental meditation 40 years ago was very much a minority hippie type thing. It wasn't mainstream. And within established churches, meditation was seen as somehow alien and, you know, something a bit strange, even though there is a long uh, Christian tradition of meditative or contemplative prayer. Um, But what we've arrived at now is a widespread diffusion through our society of an awareness of techniques that and practices that enable one to go beyond the normal distracted states of mind. I think that is indeed some kind of revolution that's going on at the moment, and um, I think it does open all sorts of doors. All sorts of new things open up because of it. Yeah, and I would like to see those doors opening up within Christianity too, because I feel there can be as uh, as much a, a closed-mindedness to these things within the church, because people feel it needs to be Christ-shaped in some very particular kind of exclusive way, and they're worried that this is secret Buddhism creeping in on their act or something like that, or um, you know other kind of concerns which arise, and um, it's almost like an education in the older mystical traditions, um, with coupled to a new experience of it now. Um, I feel can you know break down some of these barriers, some of these walls, and um, realise that all these different um, uh, traditions uh, try to capture and shape and help us develop this experience um, of a um, you know much wider notion of self than just ourselves. No, I completely agree, and I think that the I mean within the Christian tradition these things are all there. If you look at the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox, the Prayer of the Heart, and there was a kind of strong mystical tradition there. And, of course, it's built in from the very beginning. Although Jesus spent a lot of his time going around and preaching and doing miracles and healing people, over and over again in the New Testament it says how he withdrew to the hills. And he was always spending time alone in the natural world. I mean, he withdrew to the hills to pray. And and we don't know exactly what form his prayer took, but he spent a lot of time doing that, a lot of time away from the hubbub and as soon as he reappeared and he was surrounded by crowds and all sorts of i mean all the accounts in the new testament show how he pulled crowds in like, like a magnet um so he was constantly having to get away from all that to pray and even in his last hours in the garden of gethsemane before the crucifixion he was praying in a garden and he asked some disciples to be with him and they just fell asleep so he was basically praying alone in the, in, in the most crucial moments of his life. Um, so I think it's very clear that um, this is rooted in all traditions. Of course, one thing we haven't discussed is how mindfulness relates to prayer, because many people pray, and mindfulness and prayer are somewhat different activities. 
But I think we have to leave that to another time. That's a good idea. Thank you very much. Thank you.